1, uh, page 4. I'm quite loud out here, Amy. You can probably turn me down a bit. Uh, so, the Bible and sexuality. It's actually quite an easy sermon to start because I don't have to work very hard to get your attention, I don't think. Uh, and I also don't need to work tremendously hard to show you that our culture is obsessed, uh, unembarrassed to talk about sex or sexuality. We could uh, mention things like Fifty Shades of Grey. We could talk about the statistics on porn. We could talk about the gay marriage debate or gender identity disorders or all these things. But actually, that would be to patronize you because you are living and breathing the air of that society and that culture. So I don't need to do that. Um, But what we're going to do this evening is to see two foundational truths about humanity, two of the core beliefs of uh, the Christian faith from God's Word, the Bible, which impacts on a Christian's sexual ethic. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, if you're not from a Christian worldview and uh, that's not your uh, perception of the world, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not expecting you to agree with everything I say tonight. And I'm certainly not expecting or trying to enforce upon you a list of do's or don'ts. I'm not expecting to give you a code that you should live by. That would just be to feed you uh, for the sake of making you vomit. But what I want to do is just show you these two foundational beliefs of Christianity that you might see why Christians take their stand where they do. To show you why Christians will be courageous and even confident in standing for a view of sexuality and of sexual ethics. Does that make sense? And as we survey these two foundational core beliefs, I hope in some ways it encourages you to scrutinize your own foundation. To... Uh, do a little dig and say, okay, where am I building my foundation for how I uh, perceive the differences between male and female? How can I draw my line on what is right and what is wrong sexually? Because we all draw a line somewhere. The question is not whether we draw a line in terms of morality, it's where. And as I show you where the Bible uh, founds those things, grounds those things, I hope you can start to think about where am I getting my basis for sexual morality? You know, how, how can I say from my worldview that uh, pedophilia is wrong? Do I have any basis for saying that rape is wrong? Um, and so that's basically where we're going tonight. I want to show you these two things and not that you might agree, but so that you might see where and why a Christian would stand there. And then to maybe scrutinize some of your own. So two things we're going to see. First, uh, the image of God in humanity. And then secondly, we're going to see the covenant love of God for humanity. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 26. If you're new to church, you've not been before... Uh, to negotiate our way around the Bible, it's split into chapters. They're the big numbers, and the verses are the little numbers. So chapter 1, verse 26, we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, listen to the repeated phrase, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So here we have in the creational account, the uncreated creator making humanity. And he attributes to humanity a special significance. They are different, distinct, unique from the rest of what he has made thus far. And what is that distinctive? What is that special thing attributed to humanity? Well, it is made, the repeated phrase, in the image of God, in God's likeness, in his own image, in the image of God. So here is God's purpose for humanity. Here is his blueprint. Here is your reason, your why for living. To display God to the world. To image God's goodness and his being in his creation. Do you see that? Humanity, barring none, is to image God in his world. And that image of God in humanity includes everything about them. So that everything that is manly about a man images God. And everything that is uh, womanly about a woman images God. That includes their sexuality. Male and female, he created them. Do you see that? Now to be in the image of God is not to say that uh, God has eyes or God has legs or that God is a sexual being. But that everything that humanity is in some way displays God's goodness and his being. So humanity is created with a specific purpose to put God on display. And God's image in the world is to be seen through this relationship between male and female. Meryl read it to us. The narratives, Genesis 1, very clear that male and female, both equally created in God's image. Genesis 2, male and female created equal but different. Equal in their nature and their being, but different in their roles. Uh, You might use the word complementary. You know like a jigsaw piece? Uh, They are different, but they fit perfectly. Not just physically, but everything about their nature is not only equal, but it is distinct and complementary to each other. And that, we're going to see that is vital to them imaging God to the world. Uh, you may have noticed the plural language where God speaks. Let us make man. So God is this Trinitarian relational being. And so if humanity is to image him to the world, there needs to be a relationship between at least two. And just as Father, Son, and Spirit are equal at the level of being, so too uh, male and female equal at that level. But just as Father, Son, and Spirit have different roles, they play in that equality of the Godheads, so too man and woman have different roles in which they are to play. Do you see how male and female are starting to image God in creation? And it's seen in this relationship, this equal complementarity. Now, let me tease out a few important Uh, and pretty foundational basic things from these points. First one, if you're going to understand who you are, you must first understand who God is. 
Now that is vital, isn't it? If we are made in his image, to understand who we are, we must first look at the one in whose image we are made. A culture may say that to understand yourself, you need to look inside. It may even say you need to look back or just around you to the culture. The Bible says, okay, if you are made in the image of God, you will never rightly understand yourself until you've looked up to scrutinize God. So, if you have not understood anything of who God is, you cannot have a right understanding of what it means to be human. Now, let's extend that to the topic for tonight. You will not understand your sexuality. You will not understand what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman until you have understood something of who God is. Why? Because you are made in his image. Do you see that? Second important point. Not only understanding who God is to understand ourselves, but to understand how we are to live, we must listen to God's word. Um, You often hear the question being asked, uh, just in general conversation, uh, who has the right to tell me how I should live? And actually this applies especially in the sexual arena. Who is anyone, who is God to tell me how I use and display and enjoy my sexuality? Uh, Do you know the Bible's answer? The creator in whose image you're made. Uh, It is his word in Genesis that brings everything into existence. And so it is his word that in his wisdom creates Adam and Eve as sexual beings equal but different. It is his word that not only creates but gifts sex to them for their enjoyment and to image him in the world. Further, it is his word that defines how that sex is to be used. Uh, Do you see, he even commands it. Chapter 1, verse 28, one of the first commands given to humanity, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. One of the first commands of Scripture, God says, have sex, make babies. See that? Uh, By inference, that means that by necessity, it is a heterosexual relationship. See that? Um, But the image of God in humanity is as they submit to and willfully, joyfully obey his words. Because his word not only gives the command, but also the context for this sex to be enjoyed. We read it again, chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There's the context. The wisdom of the creator for the enjoyment and life and everything of the creation is found in this male-female marriage relationship where they leave, unite, and become one. And the third important point, it is to know that joy and freedom is to be found in obedience to God's words. You may be thinking, uh, enjoyment of my sexuality is involved in no rules, no limitations, no nothing. I just get to do what I want to do. And we think that is freedom. But actually true freedom is to be found in willful, joyful obedience to God's word. Do you remember where we are in the Bible? This is in the perfection of Eden. This is humanity in their right relationship to God and therefore in their right relationship to each other. 
and it is perfect joy. Uh, did you notice man and woman were naked? No shame. Uh, we could go to your own personal experience. We could go to medical records to show the uh, psychological, the social, the family uh, hurt that is caused by uh, a wrong use of sexuality. Uh, sexuality used in the wrong context. It is not hard to prove that to go outside of God's context for sexuality brings pain and hurt. But here in Genesis 2 is where true joy and true freedom is to be found. And it is in obedience to the design of the Creator. He knows what is best for us. Now, let's come back to why we're doing this. Because I want to show you why Christians take their stand where they do. And here's the significant point. If humanity is created to image God in the world, if you start to distort and to meddle with anything to do with humanity, what automatically happens? You meddle with the way God is being displayed in the world. So when you start to meddle with and change anything to do with sexuality, you are distorting the way God is displayed in his creation. That is why Christians will be courageous and confident to speak in to the marriage debate. Because an alteration and a change in the meaning of marriage or uh, the understanding of gender will actually distort the way God is displayed in his world. Do you see why it's important? I hope you're just trying to see that this is no small thing for a Christian. It's not just because we want to be party poopers or spoiling your fun. It is because this is how God's glory is seen in his world. So some important uh, applications, I guess, at this point. Uh, Because of this, there is a standard of right and wrong. Um, And that is determined by the word of the creator. Anything out with this one man, one woman, united to become one, is sinful. See that? Um, the, the, the common thought is, do you know what, so long as what I do sexually doesn't harm anyone else, then it's fine. But actually, the point is, if we abuse sexuality and therefore distort the way God is displayed in the world, it is harming someone. It is robbing God of his glory. And so you cannot say, well, as long as it doesn't harm anyone on the horizontal level, it's fine. You know, there's a guy in the Bible who sins sexually, uh, commits adultery. And you know, when when he eventually comes to repentance, he prays a prayer and he says, God, against you, you only have I sinned. See his point? When you sin sexually, it is not just a horizontal thing, but it is a crime against the Creator. And so there is a standard of right and wrong. Another important application is that our understanding of what it means to be male and what it means to be female is not determined by what our culture says it is. 
It is also not determined by how I feel inside. Oh, I feel like I'm female even though I am a man. Uh, Our sexuality, our gender, is determined not by how I feel or how the culture defines it, but it's defined by the character of God. Isn't it? If we are made in his image, male and female, then male and female is as unchanging as his eternal character. And so it's determined not by us or our society, but his eternality. And so it's the design of the creator, not the desire of the creatures. It's the word of the creator, not the wants of the creatures that defines what it means to be male and what it means to be female. So the book of Romans will uh, tell us that it is when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for pictures of women or men. Or when we exchange the truth of God for a lie that we will start to change the way we use sexuality from what is natural, that is what is in line with God's design, to what is unnatural, to what is sinful. So do you see that first point? Why, is, why do Christians take their stand where they take their stand on humanity, on sexuality? Because it is a, an alteration of it, a distortion of it will distort the picture of who God is in his creation. Now give me, some, give me at least a head nod if you're with this because we can't move on until you've got this uh, because the second point builds. So first point, the image of God in humanity. Second point, God's covenant love for humanity. The covenant love of God for humanity. Now it, it is the right question to ask, okay, how is it that God is displayed through this male-female relationship? Why is it that he has determined in his wisdom that it would be a male and a female leaving, uniting, and becoming one? How does that display God to the world? Um, It is found in this idea of a covenant. Covenant is a, a promise. We tend to think of marriage today as a contract which can be formed, maintained, or dissolved as any couple sees fit. But actually in the Bible, this covenant, this promise, this marriage of uniting and becoming one involves a fundamental transformation for both people involved. And this idea of a covenant of marriage is created by God that he might teach us something about himself. Just as he attached a special significance to humanity, so he has attached a special significance to the idea of marriage, to the idea of this covenant love. It's not only who God is, but through this covenant love, he is displaying what he is doing in the world. Um, The language and the image of sexuality in this covenant love is the most powerful that God uses in his words to describe the relationship between himself and his people. And so marriage is not an end in itself. It is not just so that a man and woman would be united together. Marriage is far bigger than that. It serves such a bigger purpose. It is so that God can point to it and teach us what he is doing in the world. Uh, Let me show you this. 
Uh, first of all, positively, if you've got a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'll give you a page number once I've found it. Ezekiel 16 is found on page 842. In fact, we'll start on 841. But God here in this passage uses the idea of the marriage covenant of love to describe his relationship with his people. Let me read Ezekiel 16, verse 6. Here God speaks of his people. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. Later I passed by. And when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Do you see that language? Here is God describing the relationship of him with his people, and it is of him as the husband, the bridegroom, coming and committing himself in covenant love, saying, you're mine. So why does God create Marriage. Why does he determine that it would be one man, one woman, united to become one? So that he could point to it and say, this is how much I love you. That he may point to it and say, this is what humanity was created for. To be united to God, not rebelling against him. But to be one with him. To be loved by him. And so God creates this marriage relationship, not as a substitute for God, but to point to God and teach you what he is doing in the world. You see that? Sexuality, marriage, fills a much bigger purpose than just a man and a woman. God uses the language. He creates it to point to it and say, look at my love, the covenant, the lasting, the eternal love that I have for my people. Now let me show you this negatively because it serves the point. Let's go forward to verse 15 of Ezekiel 16. It's on the screen as well. Because not only do we see God's covenant love for his people, we see their rebellion against him. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty. You used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver. And you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. You took your embroidered clothes to put on them. And you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat. You offered this fragrant incense before them. This is what happens, declares the Lord. See, positively we see God using this language, creating this language to point and say, this is how much I love you. But he also uses this language to show humanity and say, 
Look at how sinful you've been. See, the, the point of sexuality is to teach humanity not only of the love of God, but of the whoring of humanity. Do you see sin there? Described as prostitution. That is the horror of our sin that God wants us to see as we understand this idea of sexuality. He says it is as horrific as a wife coming home to her own house, into her own bedroom to see her husband in bed with a lover. So this language of sexuality is far bigger than just me satisfying any bodily lusts. It is created that you would see that you were made in his image to be united with him in relationship and to see the horror of when you rebel against him. Ezekiel 16, he calls his people and says, you whore. See that? One more thing that the Bible has to tell us about this idea of covenant love. And it takes us directly to the person of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, as he appears on the scene, is early on described as the bridegroom. And actually the story of the whole Bible can be summed up in a phrase like God's son sent to earth to marry a whore. Because the story of Jesus is that he comes as the bridegroom to marry his people. He comes as the lover to be united to his people, the church. But God knows that we are not a beautiful bride. We're not a clean bride. But actually we are the whore of a prostitute. And yet it is when we are still sinful that he sends his son and uses the imagery to unite himself, to wed this prostitute. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus comes to those who are sexual sinners and he pledges to not only wed them, but to wash them. He pledges, despite their sin, to unite them to God through his cross. Uh, Come with me to one more uh, section of the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. I want to show you this language. Ephesians 5 verse 25. So on the screen, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the words, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. See what Jesus does? He comes and he loves the church as a husband ought to love his wife. The language of this covenant love, the oneness uniting, is used to display the gospel. Where Jesus comes to his filthy, whoring bride and washes her clean. 
That is glorious news. If you are hugely aware of sexual failings, of promiscuity, of just utter rebelliousness, the good news of the Bible is Jesus didn't come for the righteous but sinners. He didn't come for the sexually pure but for the sexually promiscuous. There's a verse in the Bible that just explains the cross of Christ by saying this, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. You can change that language. Christ died the sexually pure for the sexually impure to bring you to God. See, the whole story of the Bible is displayed through this language of sexuality and marriage that God might point to it and say, this is how much I love you. This is how sinful you have been. But see the bridegroom who not only washes you clean, but weds you. The language of Revelation describes the church coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Maybe you feel just stained, blemished, used. The gospel of Jesus is of a bridegroom who gives you this beautifully white dress and unites himself to you for the rest of forever. Now, come back to the point we're making tonight. Why, why do Christians take their stand on sexuality where they do? Why would they be committed and courageous and confident to stand where they stand? Because to distort a view of marriage is to distort the gospel that God puts on display through marriage. In that bit of Ephesians, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It is as a husband loves his wife, laying down his life, that the world says, there's the gospel. So we start to meddle with sexuality or marriage. We start to distort, cover over, lose the display of what God is doing in the world. That's why Christians take their stand where they do. Not only because made in the image of God, they want to display who he is, but as those who have been united by God through the bridegroom Christ, they want to display what he has done on the cross. See why we stand where we stand? Uh, Sexuality is far more important than you might think. Because it is imaging God and it is displaying his gospel. It is not an appetite. You know, the world makes it like caffeine or a Mars bar that I can just munch on whenever I feel like it. The Bible says, no, there is a far greater significance to what is going on. And so this this does impact how uh, God's standard of what right or wrong is. Because it is all tied up with, does this display God and his work of Christ to the world? So take the young man who is in his room watching porn on his laptop. Does that display the gospel of Christ to the world? No. Because it is not the uniting of one man to one woman forever. It is a selfish act of lust that is done in private. I take uh, the woman who just goes from relationship to relationship 
sexual episode to sexual episode, one night stand to one night stand? Why is that not in line with the sexual ethic of the Bible? Because it does not display God's covenant forever love with his people. It does not display the gospel of Christ. Do you see that? That is why Christians take their stand and live where they live. Sex is far bigger, far more important than we might think. Now, maybe you are a non-Christian and um, maybe you have had sexual episode after sexual episode. Maybe you're trying to find satisfaction in these things, uh, but haven't, just left unfulfilled. Uh, It's not surprising because you're trying to find satisfaction in the shadow rather than the reality. Sex is meant not to be a substitute for God, but to point to God. You'll never be satisfied with any sexual episodes until you find satisfaction in the God, your creator. Um, There's a guy who wrote, every young man who rings the doorbell of a brothel is looking for God. I think he's right. Do you know, this also helps those of us who are single. Um, Watch the Friends episode where Chandler is just devastated that he's going to be alone and die alone and everything is bad. The world has no answers to singleness. Do you know the gospel uniquely does? Because those of us who are single can say this, all right, although I'm not involved in this temporary marriage in this life, I've got the reality that those marriages are pointing to. I've got the reality that an earthly marriage is only a shadow of. I've got the best bridegroom. I'm waiting for the greatest wedding. So I can I can endure, I can enjoy singleness here. Because I know I'm involved in the greatest wedding between Christ and his church. Final thing does show us that there is forgiveness. There is healing. There is restoration for those who have sinned sexually. It's a great story in the Bible where Jesus is at a party at a Pharisee's house and a woman comes in. The commentators agree that she was a local prostitute. She comes in weeping at Jesus' feet, uh, kissing his feet, just overjoyed by Jesus. Why? The text explains she loved much because she has been forgiven much. Uh, Maybe tonight you can cry with tears of joy at the feet of Jesus because he is the one who comes and washes clean everything that we have done wrong in our past and gives us the white robe as part of his cleansed bride. There is great dignity in being made in the image of God and there is also great joy in being part of the bride of Christ, washed and wed to the greatest bridegroom. Let me pray.